Hello and welcome to the Room of Lives. I am your host, Neil. Today we are talking with Carol Gilson and Jordan Stanford, who do ketamine-assisted psychotherapy in Austin. As I usually do, let me first tell you how I met Carol. In my podcast, I have already hosted Ian Benewis, a Black Hawk helicopter pilot in the war on drugs, who later began to take his veteran friends to South America for ayahuasca ceremonies to heal their trauma. After the talk by Ian that I hosted at the University of Texas at Austin, we were all getting a beer in North Campus, and that's where I met Carol, who had come to listen to Ian's talk. Carol heard of my blooming interest in psychedelics and recommended that I attend the Horizons Psychedelics Conference in New York. I eventually went to New York to attend this conference, where outside the conference I met Blue, the homeless vegan girl who I interviewed for my podcast, and then within the conference I heard several presentations, particularly one by Brazilian psychedelics researcher Draulio Barros de Araujo, which kick-started my vision to become a psychedelics researcher. So in a way, perhaps without knowing it, Carol had a significant hand in shaping my life's trajectory. Here are some excerpts from Carol and Jordan's website to help you become familiar with who they are and what they do. Austin Ketamine Assisted Psychotherapy was founded with the desire to help people truly use ketamine as a tool for personal, customized transformation. We are concerned that many clinics do not provide adequate set and setting for what can be an overwhelming, scary, transcendent, and reality-shifting experience. It is not enough to just take a drug and be a passive recipient on a ride. That is where we come in to help create a loving, safe, and healing container. Through our own deep experience of the medicine, we are offering a toolkit for navigating the mental and physical territory we enter when ingesting ketamine. Too many people in the burgeoning ketamine industry have barely taken it themselves and are blind to how it can leave patients flummoxed and even shaken or confused afterwards. When deep in the ketamine experience, all the scientific knowledge about receptors and efficacy drop away and we are in direct experience of a mystery of seemingly infinite potential. We help you not just take a trip, but dive into the ocean of self and come back with pearls and new skills for life. Carol Gilson has a Master of Science in Social Work from the University of Texas at Austin with a focus on trauma and its impact on the brain and DNA expression. She has extensive training in trauma-informed care, dialectical behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, and motivational interviewing. Carol is currently being certified through the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, also known as MAPS, to participate in the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy training program. Carol has assisted in over 500 ketamine-assisted psychotherapy sessions in a medical setting. Her personal experience with expanded states of consciousness includes over 20 years experience meditating, where she received Shaktipat from both Buddhist and Sufi masters.
Carol also has extensive experience working with shamans and guides using a variety of psychedelic medicines and is deeply involved in the practice of Bikram Yoga. Jordan Stanford holds a Master's in Counseling from St. Edward's University with a focus on marriage and family therapy. He is currently training with MAPS to participate in the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy training program as well. For the past few years, he has worked as a transpersonal life coach. Jordan is personally experienced with many different medicines, as well as spontaneous, endogenously produced transcendental experiences. He has also worked with a diverse group of shamans and medicine practitioners. He enjoys pushing the limits of physicality with practices like Bikram Yoga, meditation, dancing, and long-distance running. So in this first episode, we talk about all aspects of their ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. We start with ketamine itself. What is ketamine and what are its effects? How does it help therapy? What's its legal status? Can it be abused? We then talk about their ketamine-assisted psychotherapy sessions. How do they get the clients? What kinds of issues do they treat clients for? What happens in a typical session? What do they do as therapists during sessions? What are the methods, skills, and techniques? What is the role of set and setting? How is the therapy organized over time? We also discuss how ketamine is often used irresponsibly by clinics and some potential risks of ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. If you enjoy visiting the Room of Lives, consider donating Ether, Dai, or other Ethereum-based coins to abhranil.eth. That's A-B-H-R-A-N-I-L dot E-T-H. So what is ketamine? What is ketamine? For someone who doesn't know anything about ketamine. That's a very good question. (laughs) First of all, it's a very teeny tiny molecule. Mm -hmm. The experience of it can be many different things, like with any drug. It's classified as an anesthetic. It is... um, Something that was created for one thing, but ended up being very useful in some other ways. Very often when I mention ketamine to people, people often uh, say, is is that the horse tranquilizer? Or, you know, is that a cat tranquilizer? Yes, it can be used to tranquilize a lot of things. Uh (laughs) Probably just about anything in the animal kingdom. I don't know about Mm -hmm. bugs, but it um, it is something which helps you disconnect from from certain facets of reality and perhaps from all of this reality to a degree Um, that's why it's useful as an anesthetic you can disconnect from your body well and it was originally as the um creator's wife termed it as a dissociative yes her looking at the experience from the outside she uh she used the term dissociative 
I do not believe that that describes, that accurately describes the actual phenomenology of the experience. Ketamine is also, I see it as a very alien molecule. Mm. I don't think there's any evolutionary precedent for this. It's called an RL cyclohexylamine. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's a pretty unique thing that's being inserted into people's brains. So um, I don't think anyone really knows what the long-term consequences of all the alien, mo- I mean, there's tons of new kinds of molecules we're creating and um, putting them through the blood-brain barrier. What's that doing to us as a species? It'd be interesting to see. Mm. Well, there are a couple other things I would like to add to that. Like ketamine is the most commonly used anesthetic in emergency rooms um, because it can be used on infants and elderly. Um, It's safe with most medications because it doesn't depress the respiratory system. So if a person came in um, with opiates in their system, adding a traditional anesthetic that is of an opiate base Mm. could kill that person because of respiratory distress. Um, Or if a person has a pre-existing pulmonary condition, a lot of anesthetics can be very dangerous for that person. And if you think about in an emergency situation, you don't necessarily get to take the best health history. It's just treat what you see. Mm. So ketamine is often used in an emergency room setting because of how safe it is and that it has very few drug interactions. Yeah. Um, And there's only one documented death of ketamine use in a medical setting and that person already had a super compromised system going into a very difficult surgery. Mm. And they attributed the medication to being what led to the person's death because they were so compromised going in. Mm-hmm. And they died before the surgery began. So these two effects, uh, well, uh, I was just reading that, I mean, it also has recreational use, yes. you know, hallucinogenic effects mm-hmm. of ketamine. The hallucinogenic effects seem like, uh, I mean, they're like, a lot of stuff happening mm-hmm. in your brain. Whereas the anesthetic is like, nothing is happening. You're like, knocked out cold. So yeah, it's dose dependent, for that's sure. That's dependent on this. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if they give you enough, it just knocks you out. But is it the lower doses that the hallucinogenic effects happen? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because dosing is different for everyone. Like, it's, it, it's very, it's completely variable. Like... Most medications are given on a weight base. Mm. So if you're a man and you weigh this much, this is your dose. But ketamine doesn't work that way. But it's it's often given on a mm. weight base system. It's often, um, in the clinic that I worked in, I did over 500 ketamine sessions in a psychiatrist's office using intramuscular, mostly some lozenge. Um, and we would start with kind of what's becoming the the base, the norm, which is half a milligram per kilogram of body weight of ketamine. Um, and that's the base dose to see how you respond. For some people, I've experienced them having complete ego loss at that 
amount. Um, complete psychedelic, spiritual emergence experiences. Other people at that dosage experience very little. And it's more of a psycholytic dose, which is um, dosing that allows you to be somewhat separate from yourself, separate from your story, um, less emotionally engaged. Mm. So you're able to be more of an observer to your story um, and be able to experience your past without the emotional flooding or emotional component, which sometimes which often gets in the way of breakthroughs in therapy, especially if you have trauma. Mm. So, yeah, I was about to ask you guys, how does it exactly help in psychotherapy? So that's... That's That's one of the biggest components is that it helps you separate yourself from yourself. Yeah. And be an observer of the self. Yeah. What other components would you say that the, the effect has that helps in psychotherapy? There appear to be some biological effects which are beneficial. Mm-hmm. I'm not very good at at talking about those. You might be able to say them better. But there's a there's a there's an anti inflammatory effect, definitely. And sometimes I think neurogenesis. Mm. So it appears to um, appears to help jumpstart something in the brain. Yeah. So there is um It's one of those things where it's like, we don't know how it works, really. Um, A lot of smart people are trying to figure out what the mechanism is in the brain. Mm. Um, But from what I've read and what I've kind of intuited from my own experience using the molecule is that it it definitely is anti-inflammatory. And if you think about it, pretty much every discomfort that we experience is inflammatory. Um, Depression, anxiety, body issues are all caused by inflammation of some sort. And um, whenever, so Jordan was talking about neurogenesis, there has been um, research showing that there's more connection um, to the prefrontal cortex, like literally new pathways are growing. Yeah, dendrite growth. Dendrite growth um, after, during and after the use of ketamine. Mm. So it's actually healing your brain. Yeah. And in cases of trauma, trauma changes your brain. Like there are parts of your brain that don't develop if you have chronic trauma starting at a young age, Uh, the prefrontal cortex is much smaller and not as connected to the mid and lower brain. So whenever um, we use ketamine in therapy, the patients are actually, their brain is actually changing and it helps to connect the prefrontal cortex more to the mid and lower brain. So then over time you become less reactionary. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. if your your prefrontal cortex is mm-hmm. where we have all the 
control over our emotion. It's how we really read the environment. It's how we connect to human beings in this way that we're connecting right now. Being able to feel comfortable and trust that person and really connect. So if you've had trauma and been hypervigilant, there's other parts of your brain that have been needed and grown larger than the average brain, like mm-hmm. the, the amygdala. Maybe. The amygdala. Mm-hmm. Um, and so something that I'm really fascinated with is the HPA axis, which is the hippocamp- hippocampus, amygdala, and pituitary gland. All those things are super active when you're hypervigilant or have trauma. Um, they also highly impact your immune system. So if those are constantly firing, you're unable to regulate most of your system emotionally, physically. Mm. So in that state, you're in a more inflamed state. People who experience trauma often have more intestinal problems, um, issues with autoimmune disorders, allergies, like Things, skin conditions, maybe? Skin conditions. You've seen, haven't yeah. you seen people with gut issues? Uh, you've seen that cleared up. Mm-hmm. Yes. In, um, psoriasis is a common one. Wow, this is kind of fascinating because, like, the things that you're saying now is um, connecting to a lot of my experiences, like mm-hmm. people that I know and mm-hmm. things that I know about them. And mm-hmm. some of these things are kind of like falling. Yeah, okay. And so I have. In the clinic, people would come in with a diagnosis of Crohn's disease or just general bowel issues. And over the course of treatment, those symptoms dissipated and they considered themselves cured. Yeah. So my theory (laughs) is that... That's so cool. Not only is ketamine an anti-inflammatory agent for the body, um, but through the healing of the brain, it is impacting our entire immune system Mm. through calming the HPA axis. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I'm a little paranoid. This has happened in the past where I didn't actually press the record button. Okay. So that's that's good to be paranoid. Trauma from... So, so, so it's recording. Yeah, it is. And then I have this. Yeah, yeah. So we're good. Okay, so um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about an experience that I had, which I suspect was a ketamine experience that I did not intend to have. But before <laughs> that, I want to ask, so is ketamine a purely synthetic uh, molecule? You were talking earlier about um, these kind of alien molecules that are... Um, that, that we are taking. So is it purely synthetic or is it, uh, can it be derived or does it have a close cousin in nature? It's purely synthetic. Yeah, I don't know of any, any close cousins in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, like even things like MDMA uh, yeah. originally, you know, came from saffron. Um, LSD comes from an ergot fungus. So there's, it's, it's an interesting molecule as far as psychedelics go because there's, um, most of the psychedelics have close cousins, you know, with serotonin and dopamine and stuff. And yeah. 
Academy, not so much. I see. So, so that's something that in my mind is is a little concerning mm-hmm. because so when I first started doing psychedelics, I had no discrimination. I would just go by the kind of effect it had on me. And the first psychedelic that I did, I don't know if you would call MDMA a psychedelic, but yeah. oh, I would. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I read about it, and I was like, I want to do it, and in a not party setting. Yeah. I want to Beautiful. feel this like empathogenic thing. I'm going to do it with a human. I'm going to see how I feel. And I was like, great. And so... Did you do it with a guide? How did you... I just did it with my girlfriend at the time. Oh, yeah. that's beautiful. Um, so no guide. And then I've ha- I did it like several more times. Mm-hmm. And then I noticed that there would be like this crash afterwards. Yeah. But it wasn't as bad for me as I felt that it was on average for other people. For mm-hmm. whatever reason. And I think partly meditation helped. Like, Was the crash... Uh, did you have a crash after your first time or was it with subsequent uses? Definitely had a crash after my first time. Oh. Mm. I felt like my mind was going in the exact opposite direction from all of the things that I was feeling. Like during the trip, I was like, oh, so full of love towards everyone. And then during the crash, it was like an exaggerated sense of like distance, distrust. Um, yeah. I think that happens sometimes um, with psychedelics in general. Yeah. Because there's this expansion that happens. And if you think of a rubber band, if you're pulling the rubber band, then it's going to snap back. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so that's something. It's valuable therapeutic material. Even yeah. the, the crashes and the difficult feelings after, they can be yeah. all of it. And that's what how we see ketamine, too. Everything that happens from the medicine is can be a valuable experience if we know how to modulate it. Like, oftentimes after ketamine, people feel wonky and drunk, and mm. if they move too fast, they get nauseous. So, yeah. here's an opportunity. It's not just you're not just feeling kind of crummy. It's mm. an opportunity to learn to move slow and listen to your body. Yeah, and I think with MDMA, like, it's really difficult to know how to come down from the mountain. Yeah. In a respectful way. Well, I mean, all psychedelics are non-specific amplifiers. Um, who was it that said that all the time? Uh, Groff said that, I think, mainly about LSD. Yeah. So Groff said that about LSD, that it was a non-specific amplifier. Yeah. But I think it translates to all psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you can set an intention... Um, but things are going to get amplified, whatever is ready to be seen. Yeah. So in that instance, all the, the difficulty afterwards, um, I'm wondering if those are things that you experience, um, on a subtle level or on a level that's, you know, just below the surface that you're not really tapping into. And during that time, it was amplified. Mm. Yeah, could t- because <laughs> some of my suspicions during those crash actually ended up in life being truer than the things that I had felt on the MDMA. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so it's, so it's kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> well, when you have a psychedelic experience, you sometimes cherry pick that this is the lesson. Yeah. Because you're like drawn to something that's kind of attractive or this is how yeah. you'd like to be. And then there are other things that you're like, oh, that, that was kind of bad. 
<laughs> but in retrospect, sometimes like those like negative things also turn out to be like very valuable insights. Yeah, they're just really fucking uncomfortable at the time. Yeah, they're hard, yeah. To, hard to deal with. I think we need community to help us deal with some of these things. They're so yeah. overwhelming yeah. sometimes. So what I was trying to get at was that after I experienced some of these negative things and a couple of my friends told me, oh, you shouldn't do ecstasy, it like blows holes in your brain or something. You know, yeah. like people talk about that because yeah. some experiment and they probably give like way too much to this monkey or something. It was an experiment actually with methamphetamine. Ah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then I was like, okay, so should I start doing a little bit more research and which would help me discriminate what is a good psychedelic or better psychedelic? Like, I don't really know so much about these things, but then I started kind of uh, learning and exercising this sort of thumb rule that if it if it is a more natural source then I would like trust it a little bit more mm -hmm. because there have been I mean these synthetics are fairly recent mm -hmm. we haven't been able to manufacture these things uh, before I don't mm -hmm. know maybe a hundred or so years back mm -hmm. whereas a lot of these natural psychedelics like mushrooms Mm -hmm. There have been many traditions that have been using mm -hmm. them for many pur for purposes for such a long time. Mm -hmm. So while the science develops on one of these some of these new molecules, mm -hmm. I'll let that be. But for my own personal use, I would trust the things the, the kinds of natural psychedelics that have been used for a long time by many traditions. Mm -hmm. So these days, I have kind of decreased uh, synthetic. Mm -hmm. psychedelic use and started preferring things like mushrooms mm -hmm. um, so that's why I kind of asked is there a close cousin of ketamine in mm -hmm. in the natural world so so what are your thoughts on that and like where ketamine stands where on well I think it's it's a false there's a false dichotomy sometimes that people mm. the way people put it forward that there's this synthetic and there's natural yeah um, and there's this mistrust of things that humans create as being possibly uh, possibly kind of nefarious or harmful to the system. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely true sometimes, and sometimes it's not. I think you have to look at things on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, I mean, we are a manifestation of nature, and nature is constantly doing chemistry, and we're doing Evolving. all kinds of chemistry. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a study that showed... Uh, MDMA analogs in, um, I think it's in San Pedro cactus. Some mm -hmm. fairly close molecularly little guys in there. Like, what, what's a cactus doing with MDMA analogs? Yeah. Maybe they should ar arrest the cactus. <laughs> um, but it seems like nature is kind of going in that direction of just creating these new mm. things. Well, MDMA is derived from saffron, which is from nature. Yeah, I mean, so it makes of... sense that. Um, I'm thinking about the stoned monkey theory. That the stoned ape. Stoned ape theory. That, Maybe monkeys do. Um, that was Dennis and Terrence McKenna, right? Do you uh, want to talk about that? Mainly Terrence. Do you want to talk about that? Well, I, th I don't know that that's... I mean... I love that theory. I think looking at a history of use is a really smart way to look at it. Mm -hmm. And you can, just on a... On a basic evolutionary level, you look at the other monkeys and see like what's getting that what's getting these monkeys killed. I'm not going to do what they're doing. Like that's just being smart. And mm -hmm. you can look at thousands of years worth of mushroom use and see, eh, I mean, probably didn't kill anyone. We know it's non-toxic. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And to me, like, if that's true, that we started taking this stuff hundreds of thousands of years ago, possibly, mm-hmm. I feel like there's a memory of that in the system. And I've experienced that myself with psilocybin, that it feels like there's a hunger in the human brain for that molecule. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels like a, like a, almost like a nutritional supplement on one level. Mm-hmm. I tell people sometimes it's a, it's like a brain vitamin that happens to cause, you know, visual changes and possibly hallucinations. And so, yes, I, I agree with you on that. I kind of trust these ones, but there's a very, there's a very driven, curious part of me that loves the synthetic side of things and is really interested in it. And I'm also, I'm kind of scared of them. you scared of? There's a, there's a certain amount of fear towards like things that humans create, but also uh, fascination and love mm. too. It's a, it's quite a mixture and I feel, but I feel fascination and fear towards psilocybin too, because that'll, yeah. that'll mind fuck you too. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm, I'm having an interesting relationship with psilocybin right now and mm. lots of mind fucking. Yeah. Um, but in the stoned ape theory, apes would follow animals. Mushrooms grow in their scat eating some of the mushrooms and having psychedelic experiences, the theory is that that is part of what developed the human brain Mm. or part of what helped to develop the human brain is Mm. through evolution, primates consuming Mm. mushrooms. Um, so in a sense we have evolved with the natural medicines however like jordan said nature is constantly making new chemicals we are part of nature we are making new chemicals and i believe it was mckenna terence mckenna that said each new generation has their own sacrament Mm. and i feel that I mean, if you look at it, there was LSD, then there was MDMA, then there's an an uptick in the use of ketamine in this way of being a sacrament. Mm. So I don't necessarily trust the things from nature more than I trust the synthetic yeah um and you know there are things in the natural form of some mushrooms that are psychedelic that cause problems with paralysis yeah some that grow out of wood can you you can get paralyzed for a little while from and if we're using a synthetic then those things may not necessarily be there yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think it's... No, I'm understanding your perspective uh, better now. Um, yeah, the, one of the other reasons that I kind of lowered my use of synthetics is that you can't trust the quality control of where it comes from. And, you know, uh, if you're like doing LSD, you don't know like who made it. And whereas with a mushroom, uh, I would be a little bit more certain that... Yeah. You know, um, it's harder to... Well, you have to... Yeah. Sorry. You have to trust 
who procured that for you. Uh, yeah, that's true. And that they are good at identifying yeah. the mushroom because what you're probably receiving is dried and it's yeah. harder to identify yeah. after mm. yeah. being dried. Mushrooms are hugely variable in terms of how they're grown mm. and what they're grown on. And some and people say if are. you pay if you play music for them, they'll play they'll grow better and there's all these there's other tryptamines and mushrooms that some of them can really modulate the experience mm, yeah. so i think you we never know entirely what we're getting yeah yeah so which is uh, exciting I think. yeah but as far as like the synthetics go um it's important to test your to trust your source this is part of harm reduction trust your source and test your substance and you can get testing kits online at dancesafe.com yeah. mm-hmm. .org. .org sorry dancesafe.org um, always test your stuff hmm. so uh, we talked a little bit about the properties of the effect that ketamine has mm-hmm. of uh, kind of making you a bit more of a neutral observer to your own experiences which mm-hmm. helps uh, psychotherapy and we also talked a little bit about the actual biological effects it has. You were about to talk about a ketamine experience, possible ketamine yeah, yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I forgot, but I will. Mm-hmm. So, but one question that I had was, well, maybe I'll tell you about my, I'm not sure it was a ketamine experience, but I think it was. So I broke a bone when I was in undergrad playing soccer. Mm-hmm. You can see the scar where, so they had to go in and they had to drill a titanium screw to like, those two pieces of the bones together and they gave me local anesthesia where Mm -hmm. so I couldn't feel any of the surgery but they also gave me some kind of a sedative which Mm -hmm. I don't know like they put it over here and the first thing I noticed was that if normal human experience is over here and like I'm feeling worse because I'm on on the operating table I suddenly started feeling better than like a normal human person would Going mm-hmm. about it. I'm like, wow, I'm feeling so happy. And then I closed my eyes and I was on a spaceship and I was going through this square tunnel with like pulsating colors and stuff. Sounds like it was a very psychedelic experience. <laughs> Sounds like and I remember I was like lying on the, oh my God, I'm, I was so annoying. I was lying on this operating uh, table and I started saying, what is this? Is this psychedelics? Did you give me psychedelics? And the word psychedelics was so long and complicated that the letters marched past my eyes one by one in these brilliant colors, P, S, Y, and I had to read them really carefully. And I was just saying, psychedelics. And then I like started saying, is this even legal? And <laughs> doctors and nurses were like you yeah, know no, this is all right this is this is legal and they were just like chuckling so i don't know and i started and and every time i opened my eyes there would be this like world would come back like oh it's like i'm being operated on there's a main doctor he's looking through some camera doing this thing there are other doctors shadowing him and they're doing this thing and i would close my eyes back in this spaceship and at some point I felt like maybe they're making fun of me because they think that I'm like, it's like tripping or something. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to tell them, no, I actually understand what's going on in the external world. I can hear what you guys yeah. are saying. I can think about it and I can respond. But my way of saying that was I'm receiving, I'm processing, I'm broadcasting. That's beautiful. <laughs> I was it's just, true. It was such a riot. And then 
I think the next day I asked the doctor maybe mm-hmm. like what kind of sedative did you give me and maybe he said ketamine mm-hmm. or I found out that ketamine is mm-hmm. used so does that sound like a ketamine uh, yeah very much there's yeah. very often a space spacey kind of thing that happens with yeah. being in the stars or yeah um movement yeah space so they were trying to knock me out but they didn't give me enough that it has been my theory so far i think that's happened to quite a few people Mm -hmm. yeah well it was coming out of great (laughs) coming out of the even an anesthetic dose sometimes people have visions and they call them emergence reactions i think yeah 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 but it was a lot of fun um and often they'll give you um like high doses of benzos to prevent those emergent reactions. Mm. So I'm glad that you got to experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a lot of fun. So, um, yeah. So, are there any emotional changes associated with when uh, a person takes ketamine? So I was. I'm just trying to continue on trying to understand the different effects that ketamine has. Is there a emotional mood change? Um, is there like an opening up? Is there an empathogenic quality? Yes. Pretty much anything. <laughs> anything can happen. Um, very hard opening. Yeah, thing. it can be extremely hard opening, um, depending. And that's, again, the dose, the intention, what's going on in that person's life. I've seen people have hard opening experiences, almost like MDMA mm. and... Um, really transcendent religious experiences that made them be connected to all there is. Mm. Um, There was something else. There is, I think people can also get really scared. Yeah. People can, um, people can, you know, seem like they're totally gone and then jump up yeah because something scares them oh pretty um it can also it can come on so rapidly particularly with im or iv that it's such a quick change from this reality to another it can be very um very uncomfortable especially for egos that are hyper vigilant yeah due Mm -hmm. to trauma yeah yeah people who need a lot of control or knowing what's next and that can be that that those difficult experiences can be super valuable. It's all in how you prepare for them, yeah. how you frame them afterwards and process them. Yeah. Is there, uh, do people abuse ketamine for, in, in ways that you, you think are like not good for them? I've definitely seen it. Mm. Um, I think it, ketamine has a bad reputation in, out there in the psychedelic world. Uh, Sasha Shulgin and, and, Sasha and Anne Shulgin wrote about it. They they viewed ketamine very suspiciously because they saw people getting addicted to it. And of course, well, they also watched Lily kind of spin out. John C. Lily, yeah, yeah. So, and I've seen it, and I liken it to when people get too far into that world, spend too much time in that world. It's kind of like an astronaut who's been up in space for a long time, Mm. no gravity, come back down to Earth. And it's very difficult to function in this realm. And you can, I I think people become kind of disembodied. And it's, 
I don't, I think it can be very similar to even people who get really into meditation and get into seeking bliss states and it can just, it can be a way to escape just like anything else, you know, anything in this world, pretty much, um, even things that are beneficial. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think when you, if you, if a person's first experience is done right, I I don't think they're gonna, um, I think the chances of, of addiction happening down the road are much less. Yeah. And I'm curious about the addiction. Like I don't, and I'm wanting to use air quotes with that because a lot of addiction also has a physiological dependent aspect. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that people become physiologically dependent on ketamine, but it's the leaving this reality that they're seeking. So Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, with most psychedelics, you just don't abuse them or become addicted to them because the journeys are so difficult. But ketamine has this nice numbing effect of the body. So if you have chronic pain and then if you also have trauma or hypervigilance and your brain is just mm. constantly going, I can see how it would be a great way to escape that reality. Um, but I don't know if that's true addiction. Yeah. Well, I know a, uh, a guy who runs a an infusion clinic was telling me that some of it has to do with the ROA. His belief is that it's often the intranasal ROA? Root of in, the root of administration. Of administration. Uh, okay, okay. And it's often the um, going up the nose part that is more addictive for people. There's something about that route, and I think there's probably a dopamine thing that happens with the snorting. and the, It's much more, it's more quick, I guess. It can be, yeah. Yeah, he said that it impacted the dopamine system more through snorting it. And then, I don't know, I just think there's... I've seen people get addicted to intramuscular, too. That's a very quick route. Hmm. Yeah, we, I, there are... You can read tales on the internet, people doing grams a day, and... The, the thing with ketamine, though, is that you can get permatolerance with it. Like, you, you use it, abuse it to a certain point, and it might not work anymore. But it's in any function, that in any way that you want it to. Oh. And so, in these people for whom they, they've reached a state where ketamine doesn't work anymore, what is the state of their mind like in general? Is just all-time ketamine world, or...? Oh, I think... Is... Um, I mean, this is just from what I've read on the internet, okay, but okay. there's a, I think, um, I, some people get bladder problems. Mm. Oh yeah. That's a big one. But, uh, I don't know. I think there's just kind of a cloudiness and a distance from your own emotions Yeah, that can happen. And so they can become irresponsible. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because they, they don't want to. You're like, oh, this is not really me, and this is not my responsibility. Or, yeah, and I think there's there's some corollary with how ketamine is being used. Mm. I think some people, some clinicians, are using it like a battering ram against depression and just sort yeah. of hammering away at people's brains with it. And there's, a, I think, there's a similar vibe that go that is not much better than you know someone home alone 
snorting ketamine all day. Yeah. There's a there's a unwillingness to face those hard inner truths, all those yeah. difficult emotions. So you just mentioned about the root of administration, and I realized that I haven't yet asked some very basic questions. So what is the form that ketamine takes, and what are the ways in which people can take it? Um, it can be in a powder form that can be snorted or um, boofed, which is... What is... Yeah. <laughs> Boofing is rectal administration. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think some uh, some pharmacies are making suppositories, suppositories with ketamine in them because it's actually one of the... Rectal administration is pretty much the most efficient way to get drugs in your body, other than maybe I, uh, IV. IV. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's there's that way. There's lozenges that mm-hmm. are being prescribed. It's being prescribed uh, intranasally, and there's spravato, which is a very, uh, very particular kind of of nasal spray at a particular dose. Um, pretty much any way you typically get drugs in your body, ketamine yeah. can. Get there. It's very inefficiently processed in the stomach, so if you just swallow it, you're going to get very little effect depending on the dose. Yeah, it's not so. very bioavailable. So sublingual is if you have a lozenge, that's how you're you're going to hold it in your mouth for ten to twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. And then there's intramuscular injections, and then IV. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the legal status of ketamine in the United States? Um, it's Depends on uh, who you are and who, yeah, and <laughs> who has it and how it's been used. I, right now, I think it's uh, is it Schedule Two? I don't remember. Google. Yeah, I will. I'll look. But um, a lot of what it's being used for now with depression stuff that's off label. Yeah. Except um, for the the new altered um, ketamine has been around since the late fifties. And so it no longer has a patent. So um, drug companies, now that it's being used for an antidepressant, are altering the molecule slightly so that they can patent that. Yeah. Like S-ketamine, a.k.a. Spravato. Yeah. So Spravato is a slight change in the molecule, and it's administered through the nose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's patented, but otherwise you can use it off label and that's how psychiatrists are using it right now. What Um, does it mean off label? So not as it was originally intended. Um, and a lot of medications are used off label. So like antipsychotics for depression, Mm -hmm. uh, antidepressants for you know, weight loss or something crazy. Yeah. Like mm. Wellbutrin to stop smoking. Mm. Wellbutrin is a anti-depression medication, yeah. but they found that it helps stop smoking. Um, what is the minoxidil, which is like for hair thinning? Mm. That was originally a high blood pressure medication, but they found that people were regrowing hair. So then they yeah, Viagra was like kind of found that way where it was yes. supposed to be like some kind of blood pressure thing. Like, oh, you guys get boners. And, uh, <laughs> and so um, ketamine was created as an anesthetic, mm. but then they started noticing um, it was actually, and I wish I could remember his name, but in the ketamine papers, it's a book by Phil Wolfson. 
it gives a nice history of ketamine. And in there, it talks about this dentist who was working in a prison in Chicago and noticed that whenever he would do oral surgery on his patients, their moods would improve. So is it because of the surgery and the lack of pain and improved dental health, or was it the use of ketamine? Mm. And so he did an experiment and gave ketamine to people without oral surgery, and their (laughs) moods also improved. So this was back in the... 60s that yeah. this was done. I think a bunch of doctors were just shooting themselves up with it too and experimenting. And then they also noticed, which is how they started realizing that it had an anti-inflammatory effect in neurogenesis, is um, people with traumatic brain injuries were being given ketamine and the people who received ketamine often improved quicker or beyond what they were expected. And the difference that they started finding was Mm -hmm. ketamine. Um, Ketamine was also used in Vietnam um, in the battlefield when people were severely injured before transport, they would give them ketamine. And the people who received ketamine versus other things on the field had less PTSD Mm -hmm. later. So Mm -hmm. through its use as an anesthetic, there were other positive side effects that started being explored. Mm. So when you say that the psychiatrists use ketamine Mm off-label, you mean that they have access to ketamine as maybe an anesthetic, but then they give it to their patients for therapeutic purposes? Yeah, I mean... I don't know that they have access to it as an anesthetic, it's just... I mean, I don't know how the licensing It's works a prescription medication. Okay. So a medical doctor can write a prescription for medications. I don't know that I'm making a lot of sense here. Mm-hmm. Um, so a psychiatrist is a medical doctor. A medical doctor can write a prescription for ketamine to be used... And however they want to write that prescription. Okay. So. I see. So they can write. Um, so okay. So if it's a prescription drug, then that means that you can go to a pharmacy and and get it, which yeah. means that it's non. It's uses as not an anesthetic are also legal because a, a, yeah. a patient is never going to go and say I, I need an anesthetic. That's always yeah. going to be procured by hospitals and yeah. clinics. Well, so, it's also used for pain. Yeah, I see. Yeah, okay. pain management. It pain is management a, doctors. It is a, I, a, as far as the way our government overlords classify things, it's a Schedule Three mm. controlled substance, um, which means the drug or other substance has a potential for abuse less than the drugs or other substances in Schedules One and Two. Mm. Um, has currently accepted medical use and treatment. Abuse of the drug may lead to moderate or low physical dependence or high psychological dependence. Yeah. I also saw this morning that it's in some kind of an international list of essential medicines mm-hmm. or something. Um, okay, so... It's on that list because it's super inexpensive yeah. and it's so um, effective as an anesthetic. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now I want to uh, learn about 
what about the kind of therapy that you guys do like what happens typically in in your session sessions it's very personalized and it's i think what we do is very unique mm. uh, right now our service is offered to people who have a prescription for at-home ketamine use and rather than just taking that home alone um we we can come and help you have an experience with the medicine have a get the maximum therapeutic um maximum therapeutic and safe experience that you can have mm -hmm. so that involves music that involves um that involves exploring intentions and really like tuning into what that person needs and helping them realize what they actually want mm. and not just trying to not be depressed but how do we want to create create into ourselves create into the world um become a more whole person yeah so um the idea of austin kap or austin ketamine assisted psychotherapy came from my experience at the clinic and um a lot of that was research and trial and error and trying to come up with best practices because, I mean, it's kind of the Wild West. You know, there's not a manual. There's not a set way of using ketamine. Um, and so I was working with, you know, a doctor and some other, um, another social worker and a LPC licensed professional counselor. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. Mm -hmm. um, and I do psychotherapy. So we were just kind of trial and error. error. So the first day that I met with clients, um, I had staffed with their medical provider. So physician's assistants who had seen them and thought they would benefit from using ketamine. I had not met them before. And so we met for just a few minutes before the session, and then they were given I am of ketamine, which is a really fast-acting, powerful... I am? Uh, intermuscular. Intermuscular. So, so an injection in, in the deltoid muscle. Okay. Um, and then I'm there with them. The first session was the worst session that I ever had. And in that session, I knew transpersonal phenomenon was taking place. And this person was reliving trauma that I was unaware of and that we were unprepared to deal with in that situation. And unfortunately, I think that woman was trauma. I know I was traumatized by what happened and I'm eternally grateful to her and I wish that I had been able to see her again but she never wanted another session she never wanted to see me again um, and it changed everything for me that point forward like I was like okay I know we have other people scheduled to do this tomorrow we're not ready um, I'll see 
the two other people that are on my schedule today because we've said that they will see them. And I, I don't know, just in my being, I knew that I needed to see the other two people that day. Um, and it turned out that those sessions, one was meh and the other one was life changing. So I'm glad that I continued through my first day, but, um, through that I started meeting with patients ahead of time. Mm -hmm. So we would do one prep session that was an hour long. And I did that for a little while and I realized that really what I needed was deeper connection because it's the relationship and the trust that I could build with someone that would really make a lasting change and allow the medicine to truly unfold in a therapeutic way that was not always pleasant, but helpful mm. and sustainable. Yeah. So then after, and it's hard to change a medical system, you know, it's expensive to offer a room for multiple visits to talk about a medical procedure, right? And then there also needs to be staff available to give an injection and write that prescription. So we're, we were also hoping to keep it cost effective so that we could treat as many people as possible. Because if you think about it, um, people who are depressed often have a hard time going to work. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's the number one reason that people are on disability is depression and anxiety. So there's often not a lot of financial resources and people are desperate. Mm -hmm. So you want to get them in there as soon as you can. Mm -hmm. But I realized that one prep session wasn't enough for everyone, especially people who had never experienced a psychedelic before or someone who had been traumatized by psychedelics. Because I also would see people who were coming from an infusion clinic and had a really difficult, traumatic experience, and now we're trying what to recalibrate that. That's where they give IVs of ketamine, and it's usually a what I would call a flood dose, so a pretty high dose sustained for an hour. And not with the therapist. And not, not with a therapist. Mm -hmm. And often it's six recliners with a TV in front of you. What's what's on the TV? Nature scenes. Uh, okay. um, yeah, TV is your trip sitter. I mean, people, most of us need to get away from this Cyclopsian monolith that we keep in our home that we <laughs> have this strange relationship with and... But then you go into academy infusion clinic and that's your, that's your, that's your guide. Yeah. And they usually have, you know, like a, a medical professional, often people who like a paramedic, we met with, um, an infusion doctor recently and they have 
someone who was previously a paramedic set in all the sessions, but it's not therapy. It's babysitting. It's like, you know, keeping you safe, Mm. checking your vitals, Mm. and then there's a TV on. So you're having this high... And music. Sometimes. So having this high dose of a psychedelic kind of like your accidental ketamine experience. Yeah. I mean, you know you're going in and you've been told that you're going to have these experiences, but there's no one to talk to during it. There's no real support. Mm. Um, And if you've never had a psychedelic before and your heart starts racing, but then your breath is slowing down, which is really common for ketamine, like your heart rate goes up, but your breath rate slows down. That can be a sensation that is horrifying for someone and can induce panic. And then if you're panicking going into the ketamine experience, that as a dose that's high enough to get you in the, and I'm air quoting again, um, what they call in the streets, the K-hole, which is ego loss or ego death. If that's happening and you think you're dying, I mean, this can be one of the most traumatic experiences a person ever has. And so I would see people who had had that experience Mm. and they're like, "Mm." often even their mood would improve, but then they have this vision and horror going on in their head. So they don't want to do it that way again. Mm. So I knew that especially the first time I met with a person who had had that experience, after one one hour meeting with me, they were not ready to do ketamine again, even if it were at a low dose. Like we just weren't at a place where they would feel safe with me and safe with the medicine to do it. So then we started doing two prep sessions of an hour each. Then we would start doing the medicine. And so at the clinic also, Everything was done in two-hour blocks. So you're in the therapy room for two hours. Um, The first hour, you're being administered ketamine. The second hour is more talking as you're coming down. And then I would have another patient. Mm. Not everyone is finished at the two-hour mark. Um, You're still heavily influenced by the medicine at the two-hour mark. Um, dendrite growth is happening. All the brain bath beautifulness is still happening. But at that point, you're required to get up and leave. Yeah. Catch a bus home or something. Walk home, get in an Uber, get in the car with your... With your mother, who might be the reason why you're depressed to begin with, or your wife, or whatever. And so it was really disruptive to the experience. And through the way that I was trained, it was in a situation where I could be in the room for a really long time. And then, of course, if you're working with medicines, you need to know that medicine. So I've worked on it on my own, I have my own experiences using the medicine in my own home. So seeing people in, I like to call it wonkiness of ketamine, um, kind of the after effects coming back, there's so much richness in that time 
and I feel like it was being squandered by then needing to shift gears Mm -hmm. and move your person somewhere else. So what we do is we work with people who already have prescriptions or people come to us and then we help refer them to people who we think may prescribe medication to them if we feel like they're a good candidate. So these are typically people who have um, PTSD, anxiety, depression, um, failure to launch, you know, like someone who just can't seem to get the wheels going in their life, like stuck. Mm. Um, People like that are... People who are experiencing that are good candidates for what we do. So um, typically we work with lozenge. Mm-hmm. Um, we've worked some with the nasal spray, but lozenge is more predictable. Um, it's more uh, variable. like. You can adjust the dosage easier mm. with um, a lozenge. And the come up is slower. So you put a lozenge. Okay, so we meet with people twice. We have two intake sessions that are 90 minutes. And that's either at our office or at the person's home. And... Um, we like to do a minimum of two mm. because it's important to gain rapport, collect history. Have you had negative psychedelic experiences before? What was that like? Because those memories may come back. If you had ketamine during a surgery, you might have those memories come back because everything is stored in your body. And if you start having those same sensations, you may revert back to those moments. So we collect a pretty detailed history so that we can be prepared um, in the first session. And then the second session, we talk a lot about what to expect. Um, We work with the prescriber with dosing. um, And there's a couple of people that know our experience working with patients and sometimes lean on us to help Mm -hmm. determine dosing Mm -hmm. because like we said at the beginning it can be super variable you know like it's funny because one of my patients at the clinic was this giant guy like six feet 300 pounds and he would take this like tiny dose and would be far out and tiny woman petite 106 pounds she would need 300 milligrams where he's taken 80 you know to get to the same place so it's really variable where we're going so they trust us and write the prescription so that we have some variability so Mm -hmm. that we can help the patient Mm -hmm. reach. And 
their clients to us, but their patients to the prescribers. Yeah. Um, we like to start off with the dosing so that it's a soft ascent. You know, like you're just getting used to the body sensations, comfortable in this altered state with two people with you. Um, and since it was so disruptive leaving the clinic, we do this in the people's homes. So you're where you're familiar, you're where you're comfortable, and you don't have to leave. Mm. We leave you when you're, we know that you're safe, but you don't have that transition and disruption. Um, sometimes we want to do more than two prep sessions before we're ready to go in there. Um, but then we have a medicine session and we're usually at the clinic where it would be two hours. We schedule three to four hours because we want to be there throughout the entire medicine experience how long is that um we're usually there for two to three two to four hours Uh, a lozenge a lozenge will depend some people metabolize at different speeds but hour and a half ish it's it's a long slow tail so 20 to 30 minutes come up and then you can go i mean sometimes even two hours Mm -hmm. and often what we'll do is there'll be two doses so holding a lozenge in your mouth for 20 minutes, swallowing it, mm. talking, and then um, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe an hour, depending on how quickly a person metabolizes. Um, another dosing so that we at least maintain the psycholytic dose, but it potentiates itself. So then... Ideally, we'll have them in a place that they're not in their ordinary mind so that um, they get an escape from ordinary mind. And that's often where novel ideas come from or seeing your situation differently, coming up with new ways of being, Mm -hmm. inspiration, things like that, that then we can talk about in an integration session or... As they're coming out, we integrate that a little bit, talk about what their experience was. And then we have a follow-up within the next week. Mm -hmm. So with each medicine experience, we have at least four touch points with our clients. Yeah. Two preps, a medicine session, and then an integration session. Mm -hmm. And what what do you guys do when they're having this experience as a therapist? What kinds of... Uh, skills or methods or techniques I'm a licensed Mm. count therapist Mm. and Jordan has a master's degree in counseling yeah to be clear I'm not a therapist Mm. Um, myself that calling myself more of a transpersonal life coach mm. I don't really like the word coach but it's kind of a it's people understand what that yeah, yeah people understand what that means so um we play different roles um Within my license, it's out of my scope to talk about nutrition, Mm -hmm. specifics around exercise, those kind of things. But Jordan can talk about those things. Um, I take care of music most of the time. Very big on 
following the experience of the client. Oh, so yeah. you do it in real time. He's oh, yeah. the live cosmic DJ. Like, <laughs> he is so gifted. It's amazing. I'm, yeah, I don't have necessarily preset playlists, but I have various sorts of journey and ketamine. But sometimes I'm listening to my Spotify uh, suggestions and I hear a song that I know will go well with ketamine. Mm. And I'll add that to the list. And um, sometimes, like with one client, I asked her, you know, if I could, maybe we could play some darker music this time. And so I played some, um, art, there's an artist named Heilung. It's sort of a, uh, like, really it's intense Viking, Viking <laughs> music. And because sometimes people need to get into some darker territory. So it's all about... Um, using music to create a, a container for the person to swim around in. And ketamine is really interesting. It's The experience is really impacted by your auditory experience. Um, it's almost like it becomes the soundtrack to your movie mm-hmm. that's happening. For the most part, I use pretty peaceful music. Yeah. And some chanting and... But the more comfort, like, we have with the client, we might, you know, get get deeper into some of the comfortable areas. Or we'll use uh, binaural beats. We have some really good binaural tracks. And those, you really feel the power of sound with those and how binaurals actually really do work. Sometimes I feel like they don't work when I'm sober, but with ketamine, cannabis, and things like that, they really are potentiated and it feels like this hyper organization starts to happen in your brain. You can go you can go deeper with less medicine with binaurals, we found. Mm. And so I usually set really close to the client and I use therapeutic techniques. I'm the therapist in the room. And when I was at the clinic, I was the cosmic DJ and the therapist and, you know, holding the bag if they're throwing up and going and getting them snacks if they want snacks. You know, I mean, it was a lot to do as one person. And traditionally, psychedelic therapy in this country and maybe in Europe, too, has involved two people. Yeah, a dyad, usually yeah. male and female. Yeah, so there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of it's sort of a dance that happens between us with taking on different roles and sometimes people need a, a masculine figure to project onto or someone who's more feminine and we're happy to be mirrors for people so they can see aspects of themselves mm-hmm. or even aspects of other people of our gender mm-hmm. um so that's another <laughs> lack of freedom that I had in the clinic is that I knew it would be much better if there were two people in the room. And I feel like I can bring more of myself because I'm not also trying to play the music and making Mm -hmm. sure everything is fine. So I feel way more supported. And I think the well, I know our clients are way more supported. Yeah, and it, it having is having two of us there. It is more expensive having two two people take care of you, but we believe it's it's ultimately worth it mm-hmm. because you can concentrate more into the into whatever you're going for. Like it's 
it's a more intense experience. There's there's more data in the room. There's mm-hmm. I think more of a sense of being taken care of. Having male most people have male female parents in this mm-hmm. world, and having that those archetypes they're super helpful for feeling safe. And we want to make sure people feel safe before they're going in. Yeah. That's you can't do good therapeutic work if you don't feel safe. Yeah. Yeah, and we're using a medication that disables you yeah. <laughs> to varying degrees. Disables you to be, yeah, definitely that's a great way to put it. So, you know, at some point our clients become nonverbal and non motionless for a while and they're trusting us to let go and unwind that much and knowing that we are holding a container of safety for them yeah did we answer yeah 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 okay so i'm more i'm I'm curious still about so i i know that you will not be able to give me a crash course in psychotherapy right now because Mm -hmm. it involves a lot of but if, if in some broad strokes if you could tell me yeah, what kind of like, what kind of techniques or questions or how how do you um, guide? Your, is, is your role mostly as a guide or to like probe deeper into some part of their psychology that they're uncomfortable with or, or just provide support for whatever is coming up? All of that. Um, and we've talked a lot about are we guides, are we... Facilitators, Facilitators, are we practitioners? What are we? And um, we've settled on facilitator um, because we have the strong belief and a lot of what we do, there's a long history Mm. behind us. Um, We've read almost everything that we can get our hands on about... um, all the psychedelic psychotherapists who have come before us. Um, We've worked with underground guides doing our own work. Um, We've attended lots of workshops. Um, We've watched hours and hours and hours of video when we were doing the MDMA training Mm. of all these different ways of doing therapy. And I have my own background of training so I have this extensive toolbox if you will of techniques that I just draw from so I use a really eclectic approach and it's not something that I can really teach Um, I I work from this really intuitive place and having such intimate knowledge of the medicine itself I can almost feel where the person is in their experience while I'm tracking them. Mm -hmm. And so um, I never want to lead or insert my opinion, which some of my training as a dialectical behavioral therapist, that's all about being the expert, being the teacher, being the person that's helping contain someone so I have to kind of unlearn that piece of myself Mm. um, 
in a session. Like I might use that kind of coaching teaching style in a prep session or an integration, but during the medicine session, we are trusting the inner wisdom, the inner healer of who we work with. Mm -hmm. So really we're following their lead. Um, In the prep sessions, we've talked about issues that are going on in their lives and what particular, like one thing that's bubbling to the surface that they really want to focus their attention on this time. And we may work with some imagery going in to a prep session. Um, How do I, you, I wonder if I could use examples from, I mean, we're not naming names of anyone, like examples of imagery that we've used. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of our clients, uh, we started using the imagery of herself as a plant. Because she saw plants during her journey. Because she was seeing a lot of plants in the previous journey. This was integration and prepping for the next. Um, and she was really wanting to increase self-care and change some of her self-care habits. So Mm -hmm. then we started thinking about, well, how do you take care of your plants? How would you take care if you had more plants? You know, how do you, what would it be like if you were a plant? And so that kind of imagery and idea a week or so before the session and then having the session and leading up to it, it was great. She was drawing pictures of plants and we had suggested going for walks in nature, seeing more plants. She had bought some plants for her room. Um, So when we get there, she's a plant, you know, like she's ready to get in there and see herself as a plant, Um, which was a great way for her to access um, different parts of herself and ability to find compassion. I mean, who's going to be mad at a plant? (laughs) Um, Who's going to berate a plant? Mm -hmm. Who's going to talk mean to the plant? You know, so (laughs) that wouldn't work with everyone. Yeah. But it worked through this conversation that we had and then this prep that we did together. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in the session, you know, um, often something that people ask is, or they're concerned with if they're doing it right. Mm -hmm. Am I doing this right? Well, Mm -hmm. there's no right way. Of course. Yes. You're doing it. Mm So you're doing it right. Um, and then um, sometimes getting lost because there's so much information um, physically, sensation-wise, um, auditorily, sounds become really amplified. Um, sometimes people experience synesthesia, so then they're going to see the sounds. Um And so being able to contain and experience all these things sometimes. There's a bug on your. Oh, I'm not worried about a bug. It's a cockroach. Oh. Tiny one. Well, I don't know. And it's come back. Yeah. Yeah. We'll just ignore that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So a lot of what we do is just helping them stay with the experience. And help their ego get out of the way of the bigger process. Yeah. Help the ego feel safe, but also get the ego ready for some sort of kind of death experience possibly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that's a lot of what I try to do is kind of stay out of their own way, help them feel safe, stay out of their way, but also help them help this small part of themselves not be a gatekeeper and get mm-hmm. out of the way. Jordan's really Let good this at that. larger mm-hmm. process take place and kind of invalidate the various ways that people make themselves feel unsafe and validate the various stories that the egos tell themselves before they're going to a medicine session and and frame it as this your ego is doing its job it's like a cop sometimes mm-hmm. and just doesn't know that it can lay down that role and so this this introduces this kind of gets into the yoga thing we're going to talk about this introduces greater flexibility in well and what you're describing is internal family systems if we want to talk about a therapeutic style or technique yeah we use we use ifs yeah. What is, what is that? So internal family systems is um, seeing that we are multiple parts within ourselves. So um, we internalize things from culture. We internalize our parents. We internalize these voices mm-hmm. that then dictate our behavior, mm-hmm. right? And so if we're well integrated, no, none of these parts are bullying the other parts. None of them are trying to take control. None of them are trying to be taken care of by the other parts. Um, most of us do not have all those parts integrated, mm-hmm. right? Um, so one of the biggest ones that likes to come on is the protector, the gatekeeper, the cop, the this aspect of ourselves that wants the to keep us dog. yeah mm-hmm. that wants to keep us safe yeah and so that one um especially for people who have ptsd or trauma mm. um that one presents itself first and um often will prevent the person from even experiencing all that the medicine has to offer. So those, yeah, it can shut down effects. Yeah. Those two examples that I gave you of the giant man and the tiny woman, mm-hmm. he did not have very much trauma in his background. Um, he was just in a place in his life where he wanted to change careers and was kind of stuck, like spinning his wheels. Um, he did not need very much medicine, but he also didn't have hypervigilance. The tiny woman, a lot of trauma, a lot of hypervigilance. So I'm, I think it's this part of ourself that comes on to protect us mm-hmm. from letting go or um, being in a position where we could be re-traumatized. Yeah. So often what we're doing is working with that piece first and often if you have trauma and you have this hypervigilant warrior that you know is keeping you up at night and replaying every scenario that could possibly go wrong you know i mean it can cause you to be in a living hell yeah so often people hate that part in themselves and just want it to fucking shut up and go away and what we offer is 
Let's bring it in. Let's mm. sit down with it. Let's understand what it wants. Let's thank it for working so fucking hard. It's kept you safe. And I usually have a lot of love for that part of the person. So I can share all the great things that it does. And, you know, it's tired usually. It wants to go on break. It Usually by the time someone comes to me, the traumatic event is way over. And their life is in a place where they are safe on a daily basis. But that aspect of them hasn't caught up to this time, right? So we work on that little piece. How can that piece feel safe right now? How can that piece go on break? What would it rather do? Does it want to learn piano? You know, I mean, and so I have this metaphor of we don't need our armor all the time. This is a safe place where we can hang it on the door. And if you need it, you can put it on in a moment's notice. So learning that is a lot of the work that I do, which comes from internal family systems. And then other parts that usually um, the warrior part and the little self part are enmeshed. Like the warriors wanting to take care of the small person that had been traumatized. And so usually when we get to a place where the, and it doesn't happen this way all the time, but typically when we get to a place where the warrior can calm down, then the little person comes up. And again, there's usually anger at that self. Like, you're weak. All that shit happened before. What the fuck do you need from me now? And just going back and giving that aspect of the self that needed a hug and reassurance and kindness How do we do that for ourselves? And having Jordan and I there together, we can model how to treat that aspect of yourself. Mm -hmm. So we invite it in, we give it a container, we give it love, we give it support and And compassion. And going back, the use of those words is a very important part of it. There's an element of time travel. Yes. People often have time time compressed or expanded. Mm-hmm. which can be frightening mm-hmm. <laughs> at times. And so um, when you're not in this normal time flow, mm-hmm. you can more easily step into this sense of this past, which really, if you want to get into the how crazy... The folds a, of a time is what I like of, to call them. Yeah. But this is transpersonal phenomenon. Time is such a crazy phenomenon in a mm-hmm. sense. Like I feel like there's different different bands of time that we're actually existing in. Mm-hmm. And, we can go backwards in a sense, mm-hmm. which is really just stepping through a veil into the past and I think make peace. Yeah, have a corrective emotional experience. And write the memory and and keep the memory in such a way that it's it's whole, but it's also not broadcasting all this pain and fear. Mm-hmm. And what I like to tell people is that our brains don't tell time. And having a sound, a sensation, a smell, a memory can take us back in time emotionally. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we're doing this work, 
we could be anywhere in that person's timeline. And I like to think about it as the folds of time and it starts to unfold like a book, like, well, here we're open to this page when you're three, you know, and then the book can close again. But one of the, and I get goosebumps just thinking about it because it's an amazing thing to see. So I'm going to bounce around a little bit because I I kind of talk in circles. But my very first session is where, I mean, I had had my own experience with psychedelics where I knew that this time phenomenon happened and I knew it intellectually, but it was my first time being with someone who was a novice to psychedelics and seeing them turn into a toddler. Like she literally was making physical movements like a toddler. Her voice got really small like she was a toddler. I knew that we were not in ordinary time, but I didn't understand what was happening until later. Um, Luckily, her therapist called me and we were able to have a conversation um, where she had never revealed she had been abused as a small child around that age to anyone. Um, But then she started working on it in therapy with her therapist. So even though that was a traumatic and difficult experience for me and I had a lot of concern for her, there was a gift in there because she was able to confront and admit that this awful thing had happened to her and that it impacted her life every day since. And now she's with someone that she feels safe with, her therapist that she'd been with for a long time, to start unpacking that story. Um, From her, I learned that if we prepare really well, that when that unfolding happens, we can have a corrective experience in the moment. And that self becomes soothed and feels safe. Mm -hmm. That's that's pretty fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was another thing that I wanted to say about that. Um, But yeah, basically our brains just don't tell time. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, I remember what I was going to say. Usually, the way that we know when the medicine is waning is the first question is, how much time has passed? And it's usually asked exactly that way. Or what time is it? But how much time has passed is a super common question. And they're always shocked and amazed. Yeah. They either think it was way longer or way shorter than what we tell them. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's... Yeah, as, as someone just like studying neuroscience, mm-hmm. aside from all the, the therapy aspect, uh, the, the brain is just this, well, the mind is just this marvelous thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Endless mm-hmm. surprises. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even things that we take for, so for granted, like time and space. Mm-hmm. It's just this thing. The universal clock is just ticking and you're just like... And it's linear. This? Yeah, and it's linear. But it's not. Yeah. Also, I mean, my background and even my PhD right now is in physics. Mm -hmm. So that part of me also is like super excited. Like, oh, what would other physicists think of this if they had more 
like psychedelic experiences, what we would think of time. It's very hard to conceptualize unless you've been there yeah. and experience it. One of my most amazing experiences with psychedelics was I was going into a ketamine experience and I always start a timer mm-hmm. to, um, I like to have that data yeah. and I'm watching the clock and the seconds are moving way slower than normal seconds. Yeah. And it was, it was just, it was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen with my own eyes, like out here in, in the three dimensional world. And I've also, I've experienced time, time gets very flexible inside the brain. I think it's such a dense, I'll say to use this word, but like supercomputer that you can, there's all different kinds of, of time in a sense. And, it feels like even the ability to time travel on sort of a, a membrane to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. events in, in like in the past or possibly in the future. I think that's why people have precognitive dreams. They're just, this is all more flexible and less, um, less linear than we mm. like to think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah. So, uh, what is the role of set and setting? in your therapy sessions or what do you try to ensure about them? Um, Well, set is what is happening with the individual and setting is what's happening around them. Mm. So part of what we, we talked about earlier how psychedelics can be a nonspecific amplifier. So that is part of the set, like what's going on internally, what's going on externally for that person. Um, so prepping the two required, sometimes we do more depending on what we feel like they need, um, that is creating the set. So getting the person prepared mentally, emotionally, psychologically, as much as we can. Um, we also are part of the set because as humans, we read each other, we feel what's going on. So before a session, we always make sure that we exercise, we eat well, we get a good night's sleep. Um, want to be very embodied going into it. And we work together, we live together, we're partners in life. Um, we need to, if there's any discord between us, guaranteed the people are going to pick up on it. So we also need to take very good care of ourselves, each other, and the relationship because we're bringing that Mm. into the room. Um, So that's set. And then setting is the music, incense. Getting physically comfortable. Getting physically comfortable. Um, We have a huge beanbag thing called a Yogi Bo that... Is incredibly it's it will mold itself to whatever position you lie down on it mm. so it's it's perfect for ketamine it really you feel like you're floating to so we offer that to our clients so far we haven't taken that to anyone's house because no, we did once we did we did yeah oh yeah we did we did we did she didn't have a sofa um maximal comfort is important. yeah it, so getting the body comfortable um we travel with a weighted blanket because one of the first things 
that starts disappearing with ketamine is your edges, as I like to call it. You start losing your edges. This just reminded me of <laughs> and, an experience. And not where knowing where yeah. your mm. body ends and yeah. everything else begins. Yeah. So a weighted blanket helps with that. Yeah. Um, know where your edges are when you're coming in and going out of the medicine. And it's also just really calming to the nervous system to have a weighted blanket. Um, we also use eye mask. Um, there's a particular brand that is really great for psychedelic use called Mindfold um, that we use um, because you can open your eyes behind the mask, but it keeps all the light out. I also love, too, that um, it has this spongy material that is right against your face, so if you start crying, it absorbs some of the tears, um, and they're washable. We clean them, of course. So that's the setting is the environment and how your body is placed, what you're listening to. Um, we usually burn sage and Palo Santo or whatever incense the client prefers. We always bring a candle. Um, we lower the light. We make everything as comfortable as possible. Well, going back to what you were saying, trusting natural medicines or plant sources, if you think about their history, um, they're often administered by and guided, facilitated by a shaman. Yeah. You know, I mean, it is seen as mind, body, spirit medicine. And I see ketamine as mind, body, spirit medicine. And... You can't take anyone where you haven't been. So you need to know the territory to be able to really provide a space where true growth and healing can take place. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what we're working on is talking about the transpersonal aspects, like the phenomenons that happen. How to make use of those, how to make use of imagery. How to not be afraid of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's I all mean, valuable. All the data is you get is valuable. Everything that happens and you can... And remembering that all of our experiences are somehow recorded and any of it can come back in these altered states or expanded yeah. states. Um, so how do you deal with that? How do you not be afraid of it? Um, often people vocalize and become really loud and don't know that they are making sound, but those sounds are extremely important. Um, yeah, people need to release energy in all kinds of ways. So um, it can seem shocking to you to see it without knowing that that's a possibility or having experienced it yourself. So an example from one of the clients that I saw at the clinic and then we have seen since, um, she, on several occasions, became very agitated and vocal. Um, and at one point, she screamed no so loud mm that you could hear her in the waiting room. And then no followed by this 
scream. Like, I had never personally heard anyone scream this way. It was heard throughout the building. Um, And knowing her history and the way that I intuitively track, I knew that she was re-experiencing her abuse. Like, I just knew she was in it. And that's another beautiful thing about being able to be in people's homes is that they aren't going to disturb other people if they're loud. Um, If they need to move around a little bit, they can. But it was disturbing to everyone who heard it in the facility. Um, Anytime big events like that would happen, um, a staff member would come in to check to make sure that everyone's safe because there's only one person in the room besides the person on medicine. Um, And I just gave them a thumbs up, you know, and then again, this loud scream happens. They come in to check on us. I'm just giving a thumbs up. I mean, she's lying there being okay. And I just knew that this was a big moment. And then as she was coming out of the medicine, um, I just asked, uh, what was my question? Um, what was the no? And she looked at me and she was like, did I say that out loud? I'm like, yeah. What was the no? What was the fighting? What was the scream? And she told me the story and it was so powerful for her because from that moment, we got to do a piece of work of how do we protect that part of you now? You're grown, you're a grown up. Let's take care of that little you. How would we approach this situation? Um, and it was a hugely transformative experience. She was three years old being abused and her adult self got to come into the scene and rescue her. And until that day, she had had night terrors almost every night of her life. And they became less after that. Like, it was a huge shift. I don't even know how I got off that. Oh. Yeah, no, we were talking about set and setting. Uh, so. And then, oh, yeah, no, we were talking about how, who do you intend your manual for? Yeah, mm-hmm. so... Everyone in the clinic was mm. freaked out about what was happening. Yeah. And I knew that this was super powerful and that the sound was important. Her physical movements were important. She needed to have the space to do this to transform. And so I think for people setting up spaces for this work to be done, there needs to be room for that. Yeah. So um, this brings us to a, a similar theme. W- what are some possible ways in which ketamine therapy could go wrong if not done well, in your opinion? I think that would be useful to talk about. Yeah, you guys have a lot of experience in this. Or if you know if that's something that you already know about that has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, 
being prepared for erratic, fast, superhuman movements. I don't think people are prepared for that. Mm. And it can go really wrong. Um, another therapist, um, not as... Uh, traveled as me um, and not as versed. So more um, novice psychedelic therapist. One of her um, clients propelled himself out of the chair and hit a table and had a concussion. Like just... (laughs) And I mean, I'd had clients who came out of chairs, but I was always on the edge of my seat waiting for anything to happen. So, I mean, it can go wrong not expecting the unexpected and people getting physically hurt. And I hesitate with the use of the word wrong because even suboptimal experiences can be helpful for people, but see this in infusion clinics with it it feels like it's being used as a battering ram against depression like yeah kind of like ssris <clears throat> we're just going to give you this drug and fix what's wrong with you and really depression is something that's right and wise in you and it mm-hmm. is trying to communicate so in our culture we've turned depression into the enemy and we have antidepressants like we have anti-aircraft yeah. guns and like anti-terrorism and it's this Something you know, to it's get an, gotten it's an rid epidemic of. Or, mm. The big enemy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So taking this adversarial role towards it and just shooting people up with ketamine, I don't, I can't see the long-term consequences of that being good. I can't see, I don't think it's good for our evolutionary track. I don't think it's good for individuals to learn to become more strong and resilient. So I just, I'm sure if we get a little bit more clever and intelligent with it, even in infusion clinics, it can be used in a way that helps people actually really get into their material and get to know themselves and not just dissociate, so-called dissociation. But, mm-hmm. um, and I think, and I also see some clinics will give people low-dose benzos along with ketamine because hmm. they think that the psychedelic effects are not desirable. Mm-hmm. And... I think that's I think that's cheating people of you know it's like Terence McKenna said that psychedelic experience is a birthright, and to cheat people of possibly really beautiful experiences, um, I don't think that's fair or ethical. So, well, and I I feel that using it not combined with therapy. Um, I mean, it improves the symptom, but the cause is still there. So there has been some research on the difference between just being administered ketamine and ketamine with therapy, and the results tend to be longer lasting, or at least this is what the research is starting to show, longer lasting when there's therapy combined. Yeah, yeah. So we can get some symptom improvements, but real change happens within the therapeutic 
which ultimately even taking away that word therapeutic it's about relationship and most of us are wanting to have better relationships mm. and this is like all psychedelics it's an opportunity to turn, change your relational template yeah. and heal things in yourself so of course like everything is better with relationship whether it's just with yourself mm-hmm. or with other people so the more we can use that powerful tool along with this incredibly powerful chemical tool that's that's dynamite a very loving dynamite yeah and we really help people change their relationships with themselves and their story and rewrite their story and once you start to change everything around you starts to change. So if you have a better relationship with yourself, you're going to have better relationships with people and the planet and society. So this is why I'm so passionate in doing this work and using psychedelic medicines because, I mean, I've done my own talk therapy and it has literally taken me years to get to some material. Um, when using psychedelics, I've gotten to the heart of the matter really quickly. So I maybe I would, there's a thing in our culture with wanting to do things quickly, but what about efficiently? Thank you. It is quick, but maybe it's more efficient and efficiency. Ultimately, I feel like that's more compassionate Yeah. because you're not not continually ripping off a bandaid with a wound that doesn't heal doing this work those deep wounds are actually healing was there anything that you wanted to add to the topic of uh, clinics being irresponsible with uh, ketamine I um, I see like I see Spravato being prescribed now and that's a whole topic with it's, it's what is spravato. Oh, spravato is yeah. a nasal spray. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. one. There, most many drugs have left and right hand isomers, and DMA mm-hmm. has that. But the S isomer one has been patented, and they're also going for an R. Uh, there's a, I think it's ATI Life Sciences going for the R side of things. That's being done in doctors' offices, and we all know many doctors' offices are. Less yes, than, bravado has to be administered in a doctor's less office. Less than soulful uh, environments. Mm-hmm. And you have to already be on, I think, like an SSRI. You have to already be on something to get this really expensive, just the drug itself, the the dose is like 700 and something dollars, I think. And mm-hmm. then you got to pay the doctor. And um, When ketamine itself is one of the cheapest medications. It feels like a lot of unnecessary strictures around what could be a helpful medicine experience. I know it's going to make some people a lot of money, but... Um, and Spravato, you're not supposed to give therapy. It's very rigid how you administer it. I don't know that you're not supposed to give therapy. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, so... Well, we'll see how Spravato does, but um, I hope that people know that there are many options out there for how you do this. Would you say that's an isomer of ketamine? Yeah, and I'm, mm. I'm my uh, my chemistry knowledge is quite limited. But, yeah, but the um, effects are similar. Yes, you get. Um, I don't know. I hear different reports, but 
as isomer is definitely it's still psychedelic and um i think r might be more we might need more of it more uh more weight of the molecule but um it's just a way to sort of shoehorn in something with a with a medicine that's already off patent yeah so people are doing it um some people are being motivated sheerly by how much money they can make. Yeah, I'd say cash. I mean, there, there's at least, um, I mean, ketamine clinics are just opening everywhere. I think there's five or six in Austin at this point. Infusion clinics, one KAP clinic. It's um, a wild west. Yeah, it's a wild west. And our friend who um, I told you about, who's a psychiatrist that's kind of, Who's talking to a lot of other psychiatrists? Um, they really aren't prepared for the experiences their patients are having, and um, Spravato was intended to improve depression, which initially it does. Um, if you look at people's numbers on the PHQ-9, which is um, a rating scale for anxiety, and then the, no, GAD-7 is the rating scale for anxiety, and then the PHQ-9 is a rating scale for depression. Initially, the first few treatments, those numbers typically improve, but over time, it isn't showing to be effective. Because you can't just rely on the biological mechanisms where there's so much more to us and we don't even know where where energy ends and information begins we don't know where biology ends and psyche begins it's this tangled this really amazing dance that happens and it's this western thing of focusing on one thing which is like the biological instead of all these other other factors and my theory which um of why that happens where initially symptoms improve is the biological mechanism like some dendrites are growing inflammation is reduced feels better but from your own experience doing psychedelics doors open things present themselves yeah and we don't have a cultural place to take that and talk about it so people are often just left with this confusion almost like um when you have a really intense dream and you wake up and you can't stop thinking about it you might even still have the same emotions that you're having in the dream and it's this tumultuous place i think that is what is happening that is causing the distress in people who are receiving these treatments without therapy along with it and integration and a lot of preparation. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's something to go into lightly. So in a situation where a person is having one of these emotive, transformative moments, mm -hmm. um, I think it would be a huge disservice to them um, well, and this was also encouraged at the clinic that I worked at, which is if someone starts being vocal to ask them to be quiet, mm. 
um, because the vocalization is coming from somewhere, it has a purpose. It's here to be seen, witnessed, addressed. Um, and if you're a victim of abuse, you've probably kept secrets. You were told to be quiet by your abuser, um, all these things. So just the act of trying to get them to be quiet can be re-traumatizing and disempowering. Um, I've had, I mean, in that moment, that client was also physically fighting. Like she was punching and kicking, I mean, lying in a recliner, but punching and kicking. Um, if she was restrained in some way, it would have reinforced her abuse because she was restrained during her abuse. That'd be very difficult to do with an IV infusion needle in your arm to flail around. Yeah, and if you have an IV in your arm, you can't do these physical movements that you need to do. Mm -hmm. So something that we incorporated in her, uh, the part where I was like, how do you take care of that now, was to beat the shit out of her abuser because she was punching like you're big enough, you're strong enough, you can physically take care of yourself. Um, so I think it can be really harmful to not allow the full scope, the full embodiment, embodiment, the kaleidoscope of experiences. Yeah, the full expression. Yeah, the full expression, whether it be vocal, physical, um, weeping, um, I also had people who would cry really loud, like a soul cry and asking that to stop when that yeah. there was a dam built a long time ago mm -hmm. and that needs to be unleashed. So I think that can be harmful and dangerous to not allow the full expression that a person has when they're on these medicines. Thank you for joining us in the Room of Lives. In the next part, Carol and Jordan shared their childhood and personal life experiences that brought them where they are today.